SECT would like to thank Phillips for its sponsorship of the JCCT Pulse podcast. And to let our members know of an upcoming event in November hosted by Phillips, the Spectral CT and AI Virtual Summit, which will feature industry leaders discussing the true power of spectral detector technology. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for instructions on how to register. Welcome to the JCCT Pulse, a podcast that brings you an overview of the most recent issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography and in-depth conversations with the article authors. Each episode, we will go over several hand-picked articles to keep you up to date with the latest in cardiovascular CT. I'm your host, Todd Valines, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cardiovascular CT and the Julian Ruffin Beckwith Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia. It's my distinct pleasure to have with us today someone who truly needs no introduction, and that is Dr. Dan Berman, of course, from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. He is the former past president of the SCCT and just really a multimodality imager and leader in the field of cardiovascular CT, as well as just general imaging and nuclear cardiology. And the title of the paper that's in this issue of the JCCT is The Accuracy of Coronary CTA in Patients with Coronary Calcium Scores Above 1,000 Agaston Units. This is a comparison with quantitative coronary angiography. Dan, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Todd, for the all-too-kind introduction. From the outset, I want to acknowledge that the paper is the work of Dr. Alan Kwan that he did while on an advanced cardiac imaging fellowship, and he's recently joined our faculty. He really did an outstanding job with this analysis. You know, I've been plagued. I've been doing this coronary CTA since the mid-90s, and plagued by the high calcium score patients, which we see quite frequently. A lot had been written about the patients who had calcium scores over 400, but very little had been done before looking at the very extensive calcium of scores over 1,000. What we wanted to see was what was our accuracy for picking up obstructive coronary disease, which we defined by greater than or equal to 70% uh, by quantitative coronary CT angiography. So the design of the paper was a retrospective one. We, we took 119 consecutive patients without prior coronary artery disease who had coronary CT angiography and invasive angiography and had scores of greater than 1,000 eggs and units. Our scans were read by two expert observers with a lot of experience in coronary CTA. We looked at segments that had greater than 25% stenosis and then read them by the various levels of stenosis as defined by the SCCT guidelines. Of these patients we studied, there were 14% of the segments were uninterpretable due to calcium. We just couldn't read through them. And we excluded that from our main analysis. We ended up with 726 segments in 346 vessels. It's a sizable study. The mean calcium score was uh, 
16-16 was high, and 28% of the patients had scores over 2,000. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really, a really severe degree of coronary calcium for I mean, our listeners. A mean of 1616 and nearly 30% were at scores at least 2,000 or greater. Wow. So I can imagine how, how challenging those may have been to read for you, Dan. Yeah, that's a kind of a side point. When you're reading these cases, it takes a lot of time, no matter how experienced you are, to interpret. So our primary findings were that the Negative predictive values high, but there were problems in positive predictive values. So on a per vessel basis, we had about 80% sensitivity and 75% specificity, a little lower sensitivity than you might have thought. Negative predictive value, 93%. On a per patient basis, the sensitivity was 94%, but our specificity was 55%. The negative predictive value was preserved at 92%, but only the positive predictive value is 63%. So if we included the uninterpretable segments that I mentioned were 14% of the patients here, then our specificity fell to 38%. So we also found that the most common circumstance, when we looked at the discordance between cath and coronary CTA, we found that the most common thing was for us to overestimate the degree of stenosis. Yeah, I noticed with your per patient analysis, you had 30 false positives, but only three false negatives, kind of highlighting that last point. You know, you're significantly more likely to overestimate a stenosis, saying on CT it's greater than 70%, and, you know, very frequently find out that on, on QCA, on cath, it's it's less than 70%. So overall, these are sobering findings. And I think there are several take-home points from the study. I think importantly, these are hard to read. And if you try to read through them, these difficult segments, you're often prone to error. So I think, I think we just be aware of our inaccuracy, potentially, in many of these segments in these patients. And don't hesitate as much as we might have before in calling something as non-diagnostic. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Dan. Now, any other take-home points for our listeners? Because I had a couple other comments as well. Well, I'd say the negative predictive value is high. We're more likely to overestimate the degree of stenosis. The positive predictive value is low. And a large proportion of patients, uh, a substantial proportion, have uninterpretable segments. I mean, if you wanted the take-home points, I would say from this paper, we are dealing with expert observers, a fast scanner. I didn't mention we used the force scanner with the 66 milliseconds temporal resolution, with temporal resolution really being a strong factor if it's low in increasing the blooming from calcium. So it's likely that these problems would be even more major in slower scanners and if less experienced readers were interpreting. I think it's even more problematic as in the future, we're going to see coronary CTA become a first-line test for patients with chest pain. And that means that we'll be extending 
the application in the patients with a much higher likelihood of having coronary artery disease. And these patients are likely to have much more calcium than the standard lower risk patients that we see on a daily basis. Yeah, those are really great points. And I would just add a couple of comments. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think as we see coronary CTA become the preferred first-line agent in, in many symptomatic patients who do not have known coronary disease, that while encountering this degree of calcium is not common, I think we may see it more frequently. And so, you know, I think it's important for readers to understand the challenges and how it can affect your accuracy. So kudos to you and your outstanding team there for doing this important study in this challenging population. I think it also really highlights the importance if you're going to scan patients who have high burdens of coronary calcium. And and by the way, as we mentioned, this was an extreme amount where, again, almost 30% had scores over 2,000. But if you're going to scan those people, making the efforts to ensure high diagnostic image quality through heart rate control and using, you know, appropriate acquisition parameters to really help yourself to read these. When you can read them, I was impressed with your group. The negative predictive value was was quite high and your sensitivity was quite high. Um, but knowing that you're, you're often running into non-diagnostic segments or segments that might be overcalled on CT. Now, I guess one other point, the uh be thinking about is that increasingly we'll be using the studies in patients with known disease or patients who have stents in whom it's even more likely that they're going to have uh, very high calcium scores, making it potentially even more difficult to read the scans in those patients with high scores. Yeah. And I will just point out, and Dan, you, you, you can comment here. You know, I think this was a, the worst case scenario analysis, if you will, because you know your group did exclude the segments that clearly had stenosis less than 25%. And we would expect in those areas where CT would perform very well. So you know, this was really kudos to you and your investigators for, for really setting CT up to really challenge it and to see how it performed by looking at the more severely diseased segments that had more disease. And so I think that was the right way to do this. And You know, congratulations again on a great study. Thank you, Todd. Again, I'd like to credit Alan Kwan for the excellent work he did on this manuscript. Yeah, I would really encourage all of our readers to take a look at this really important paper. I think it addresses one of the more commonly faced clinical scenarios in, in clinical coronary CT angiography, and that is the accuracy of CTA in patients with severely increased coronary calcium scores, Agassiz scores over 1,000. Congratulations, Dan. Thanks so much for being with us on the JCCT Pulse. Thank you very much, Todd, for including me. I'm Todd Valines, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography, and I'm very pleased today to have with us Joao Calvacante, who is the Director of Structural CT and Cardiac MRI at the Minneapolis Heart Institute and Core Lab. Welcome, Joao. Thank you very much, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here together with you and the opportunity to discuss a little bit about our paper at JCCT. Yeah, this is, I advise all of our reader or listeners and, and readers to take a look at this. This is titled Patient Prosthesis Mismatch Defined by Cardiac Computed Tomography versus Echocardiography after transcatheter aortic valve replacement. So, Joao, maybe give us some background. You know, how is patient prosthesis mismatch typically calculated? We know it's usually done using echocardiography. And how might cardiac CT help to define this problem? 
Yeah, no, I appreciate Todd. So the prosthesis patient mismatch is a construct that obviously became a very apparent in the 80s by Ramahim Tula. When, whenever we do a valve replacement, we're trading one problem from another. The clock starts after we implant the valve and we wanted to obviously not trade severe native aortic stenosis to moderate or severe prosthesis stenosis. So we wanted to have a prosthesis that has an adequate size to provide forward blood flow and cardiac output to this patient. So whenever we have a smaller prosthesis valve area relative to the patient body size, and that's what we calculate as the effective orifice area index, we have thresholds that have been predetermined and established so that we can determine whether or not this prosthesis is a problem. Now, this construct started in surgical prosthesis, and manufacturers have developed tables to be able to recalibrate and to determine what would be the best size for that patient so that we can avoid this problem down the road. Now, in the era of TAVR, however, since we do not remove the native valve, we just put a stent valve and we just replace that or implant a new prosthesis, there has been some recent work showing that that might occur prosthesis patient mismatch might continue to occur in the air of TAVR, but the assessment of it becomes quite dependent on several things. A, the image quality of that transthoracic echocardiography. B, how we get in these echo gradients. And three, are we doing really an association? Does prosthesis patient mismatch really matter in the air of TAVR since we know that this is a process that will have a much more longer-term implication into the remodeling of the ventricle, et cetera? So with that in mind, we thought about how can we use a post-implant CT? We're not using the native because we know that once we implant the valve, that changes the configuration of the annulus. It expands depending on how much calcification and obviously the radial force and the degree of oversizing. So we need to look at this annulus in the prosthesis configuration after the implant. Our center has started for the last four years doing a systematic evaluation of post-implant CT for several reasons, looking at the gradients on patients present with high gradients, looking at leaflet mobility for halt, and obviously we took that opportunity to look at the prosthesis, and we did several measurements at the post-implant CT and tried to look into how often does that PPM, prosthesis patient mismatch, occur. Well, terrific. And, you know, as we know, the, the echo, of course, to calculates the uh, effective orifice area assumes a circular LVOT. And we know that certainly many times that's not, not the case, both pre and after device implant. Well, walk us through your study, you know, kind of talk to our, our, our listeners about the methods of your study. What measurements did you do on CT? And what did you find regarding how CT correlated to both echo as well as post-implant outcomes? Yeah, no, this is very crucial. So we know from the literature that prosthesis patient mismatch has obviously a higher occurrence when we're talking about, for example, valve in valve. So a TAVR valve inside a surgical valve, we excluded those patients. Given their intrinsic uh, higher pretest likelihood for PPM, we just treated severe native aortic stenosis and we only treated patients also, we all included patients that have commercially approved valves. So those who are Sapien 3, balloon expandable, and self-expanding Evolute Pro or Evolute Pro Plus. So these are contemporary valves. 
what we did was to measure at the edge of the prosthesis on the prosternal long axis on the echo, uh, according to the guidelines that have been well established, that diameter. And as you mentioned, we estimate, you know, we assume that this is going to become a circle, which even in the post-implant is not always the case. And we measure with the post-implant CT at the basal plane of the stent edge using multiplanar double oblique reformats. We measured the area by CT, we measured the diameter, we did the calculation of the effective orifice index area. And what we saw was that comparable to the literature, transthoracic echocardiography called moderate and severe PPM, and we had to combine these two because the percent of patients with severe PPM, that is defined by an effective orifice area index less than 0.65 square centimeters per meter square was very uncommon in the era of Tavra. But what we saw was that well echo called moderate and severe PPM around 16% moderate, 3% severe PPM. When those same patients were imaged by CT, the percent of patients that had moderate to severe PPM was really in the single digits, was less than 4%. So echo overcalled using the same thresholds a significant proportion of patients that had moderate to severe PPM. Also, we saw the correlation of the EOAI by CT had a much better calibration and correlation with the prosthetic gradients that we saw on echo than what was measured by the EOAI by echo to indicate that the measurements that we're providing by CT perhaps would have much better accuracy because we know it is difficult and we know that this is not a circle. There were no differences between the two valve platforms, either self-expanding and balloon expandable when looked through the CT lens. However, when looking through the echo, there was a slightly more PPM by echo when we look into the balloon expandable. Wow. What I really love about your study, Yuao, is that you all look not just at the relationship between CT and echo, but you also looked at outcomes. And what did you see on that analysis? Yeah, so that was a an extension of the prior work, Todd, because you know there have been some work done on the pre-implant CT at one year, but looking only at balloon expandable and some other smaller series here, we had the chance to almost include 450 patients systematically scanned after TAVR, and we had them follow up to three years now. Yes, we understand that three years might not be enough, but boy, that's already much more, three times more than what had been previously published. And we saw that actually there was an association of when we combine again the modded and severe together, PPM when classified by CT. So the hazard ratio in those patients that had moderate to severe PPM was 3.97 with a confidence interval above one when we're looking at not only all-cause mortality, but also the composite outcome of all-cause mortality plus also heart failure hospitalization. The echo PPM, moderate to severe PPM, was also associated but 1.61 hazard uh, in our confidence interval was crossing one and you know the p-value was marginal, but maybe that might still also have a meaning. It's not to say that the echo does not classify them correctly, but maybe it overdoes and we should consider the CT using these patients, particularly in face of you know patients that are still lingering around. LV remodeling that has not come down. And obviously, you know, when we see 
uh, transcatheter valve gradients that have increased you know, for the suspicion of structural valve deterioration, you know, halt, structural valve problems, as well as the potential for PPM. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Joao, and all of your investigators on this fantastic, I think, groundbreaking study in many ways. It, uh, I think, really moves the needle in this area, an understudied, uh, I think, topic within the structural heart disease realm. And I think, just practically speaking, something that, you know, we're doing a lot more CT at our institution after TAVR. Mm-hmm. And I think we're now learning that when you, know, when, you, when you suspect the problem, whether it be PPM, whether it be unexplained high gradients and concern for halt, that CT is really becoming a central, if not the primary imaging modality to sort out the etiology in these patients. And I think our listeners, if you're not doing post-TAVR CTs, I expect that you will be asked to do so clinically in the near future. So take a look at this article in the latest issue of the JCCT. Joao, thank you so much for being with us today. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? No, thank you so much again, Todd, for the opportunity. Uh, incredible success and congratulations also for JCCT's continued strong impact factor. I think this is a premier journal for cardiac CT, and we you know, really thank for that opportunity to highlight that PPM exists in the air of TAVR, but it's probably much less common than we thought. And CT might be a great technique to kind of recalibrate our thinking and understanding of the interaction of the native anatomy with the prosthesis and many other things that we'll still be learning from this therapy. Thanks so much, Joao. See ya. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have with us today Dr. Kelly Hahn uh, to talk about a paper published in this issue of the JCCT titled Multi-Institution Assessment of the Use and risk of cardiovascular CT in pediatric patients with congenital heart disease. Certainly a group that's been understudied. Dr. Hahn is probably someone that needs no introduction if you're even just remotely aware of imaging using cardiovascular CT in this population of pediatric patients. She's the director of congenital imaging at the Minneapolis Heart Institute and the Children's Minnesota Hospital, Minneapolis. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for the invitation. So just jumping right in, you know, we're doing a lot more imaging in pediatric populations, and you know, particularly those with congenital heart disease at our institution. And I think probably a lot of our listeners would say they had similar experiences. You know, just as a background for the, to this paper, can you maybe give us an introduction as to, to why this paper was important and a little bit about dose and radiation dose in the pediatric patients with congenital heart disease? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to start this conversation. I think that when you look at congenital cardiology, there are several things that make it very different than adult cardiology and adult imaging. One is that the level of evidence for most things in pediatric cardiology is consensus-based or single institution, and it's also retrospective. And so Jane Newberger did a paper showing that only 4 to 5% of decisions in pediatric cardiology are based on actual evidence or data to support what you do. The second thing is that cumulative radiation dose is becoming an issue for patients with congenital heart disease. Uh, About 20 years ago, most patients did not survive. And in the current era, most patients will survive to adulthood. And there's a need for recurrent serial imaging throughout that patient's life. And when you start to look at the radiation doses that are listed in the literature for cardiac CT, they typically are very high and they're based on older equipment and they are not reflective of the current use of optimized CT in congenital heart patients. And so our goal with this paper really was to show a multi-institutional assessment of the use of cardiac CT for patients with congenital heart disease to show what the comprehensive diagnostic risk would be in this population. 
And we really wanted to focus on sort of comprehensive risk and include the risk of anesthesia, which has a twofold risk in pediatric patients, which includes an adverse events from the procedure and also has long-term neurodevelopmental implications at young ages. And we also wanted to look at radiation dose, which is the biggest thing that people worry about for CT, but then also look at vascular access and the need for sedation and, and kind of more of a comprehensive risk profile than just focusing on only radiation, because that's only one piece of the diagnostic risk for patients less than six to eight years of age who typically do need anesthesia for advanced imaging where a breath hold is required. Yeah, I think that's a real important point. So, you know, going beyond just radiation for our listeners, you know, looking at this term comprehensive risk, that includes all of those things you just mentioned related to sedation, intravenous access, you know, contrast and other adverse events. So not a lot of data out there on this particular topic. So walk us through, what did you do? What are, what are the methods that you all looked at, you and your co-investigators in this analysis? We kind of wanted to use this as a first step of what we see as a multi-step process that we're hoping will eventually be a prospective database that will include multimodality as well as multi-institution. And the way we started this was we took four centers from around the world that do a lot of cardiac CT in pediatric patients. We wanted to pool our data regarding comprehensive diagnostic risk. And so we did the IRB through uh, Minneapolis Heart Institute. Everything is anonymized. And we put every single CT scan done on patients with congenital heart disease into a REDCap database. And we really put it into patient characteristics, diagnostic risk. And then with that, we put it into you know, the vascular access, anesthesia, radiation, and did not, in this case, go into image quality yet, but eventually we'd like to go into image quality as well and have this specific diagnosis. And what we did was, is we did this prospectively for about a year and we ended up having, you know, in this, this particular article is for the patients less than 18 years of age, really focusing on the pediatric age frame. And it was 1,045 pediatric patients at a median interquartile range, you know, 1.7 years, so kind of young patients. And we looked at the indications and we looked at the use of sedation, anesthesia, and then also adverse events. So Kelly, what was the indication for the scans in your study? Yes. And so the primary indication for the scan had to be congenital heart disease. If it was a congenital heart patient that was scanned for some other reason, they were not included. And so it had to be that the indication for the CT scan was for the evaluation of their congenital heart disease. Okay. So almost all of the scans were done using a dual source scanner. Is that correct? Yeah, and I do think that um, we all did use similar equipment. I think that's one of the weaknesses of the paper is it really is, it's one type of scanner technology that has very good temporal resolution. And it did not, it was not a multi-vendor study, which is something else that I think that could be done in the future. Absolutely. And, and I understand, you know, looking at kind of all of the adverse events, you, you included, I mean, everything, obviously, heart rate abnormalities, respiratory events. I mean, you, you all really were very comprehensive and in this long list of adverse events that you and your co-investigators included, which I, I thought was quite a strength of the study. Well, it's one of the things, you know, what we wanted to do was to look at the comprehensive diagnostic risk and have the risk profile that we used be applicable to other modalities as well. And so some of the things that we included really weren't that relevant to CT, but we wanted to be able to have this diagnostic risk tool be applicable to other modalities as well. I noted that 11% of subjects required anesthesia. Can you comment on this? The anesthesia was interesting. Some of the patients were under anesthesia for clinical indications, and so they were very sick patients post-op that were intubated, not necessarily for the scan. And I know that at our center, we actually do use 
anesthesia to look at coronaries in babies where a lot of the other centers don't. And so that was one of the things that we want to look at in this paper too, is look at the variation from different centers and figure out when do we need anesthesia and what is the difference in the chance of getting a coronary artery in a one-day-old neonate with or without anesthesia. And we have all of that data now. And so we could start to look at image analysis in there. But to think that the times when you need a breath hold is when you're doing either functional imaging and you need that across several cardiac cycles, or if you're doing coronary imaging at a high heart rate where you need several cardiac cycles. I think for all the thoracic vasculature and that sort of thing, people typically use the high pitch scan mode, which you don't need anesthesia for. And so the times the sedation was used was for coronary imaging in young patients or for functional imaging in young patients. And typically with MRI, patients that are less than eight years of age need anesthesia because even if they're cooperative, they can't be still in a scanner for the length of the MRI scan, where we are able to sometimes do, you know, down as young as six years old if they're very cooperative because of how fast the the CT scan is. What were the most interesting results to you and your team? You know, to me, the most interesting thing was the uniformity of our findings. And so even though there is variability among the different institutions for the radiation dose, the median procedural dose length product, and that included localizing images, um, if you did two flash scans, if you did a function scan plus a flash scan, the median DLP was 20. And that was for four centers with over a thousand patients. And so to me, it really speaks to the importance of doing dose reduction and how low you can get the dose when you really are paying very close attention to it. Because I think that's one of the biggest things to worry about with CT is that. Um, and also, I think that, you know, there was very few adverse events and even using, you know, power injectors in very little babies and stuff, there really was not much incidence of that at all. And so I was surprised that across four institutions that it really is a safe procedure. And that is in doing it in critically ill babies and in babies, you know, with very highly complex disease. How did you quantify radiation dose? Was it just the cardiac series or was it done for the entire study, including the scout images, test bellows, et cetera? That's procedural. So I think the other thing was, we, that's one of the things we've done here too is because we typically for our group, we'll do like two flash scans for babies rather than doing a timing bolus and then one data acquisition, we'll just do two. Um, and so we wanted to make sure there was a procedural DLP because if you're a referring physician, that's what you want to know. What is the total radiation dose that my patient got from going for that whole procedure? And so I felt like that was the best way to do it rather than by scan. Can you comment on image quality? I think the one thing that we need to be aware of is, you know, I think there has been a push to go as low as reasonably possible, which is something we all do. But I also have to talk about dose optimization in terms of using what you need to get a good scan for that patient. And I do think that what our mission or our sort of vision for this database is that we go from, you know, four institutions. We now, I think, have 15 institutions across the world that want to participate in this. And we want to start doing both cardiac MRI and cardiac CT. And then we would like to also, for specific diagnoses, start to look at image quality. Because one thing is looking at risk, but the thing that your referring physician really wants to know is what is the best information and how can I clinically take care of this patient? And so if you're saying we're super low risk, but you didn't get the information that you needed, then that was not the right test. And so I really want us to be very critical and open-minded about looking at diagnostic risk, but then also starting to look at diagnostic accuracy. And that's where I'd like this to go in the future. Any parting thoughts for our JCCT listeners? One more parting thought is that everything written so far is that there's a linear relationship between radiation and cancer. And when you start to look, there's several papers that have come out in the last two years showing that patients with congenital heart disease or patients with congenital anomalies have a much higher risk of malignancy regardless of radiation dose. And so I think that there's a twofold implication of that. 
One is that we do need to use as little as possible because these patients also have an intrinsic risk for malignancy, but that we can't always assume that all of the malignancy is related to the radiation. Well, thank you so much for Kelly Hahn. I really appreciate you taking the time out to be with us today on the JCCT Pulse, and I encourage all of our listeners to take a look at this important article in the current issue of the JCCT. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us today for JCCT Pulse. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Want to read the articles we discussed today? They are available online along with the full issue at journalofcardiovascularct.com. The link is provided in the show notes. Members of SCCT receive online access to JCCT as part of their membership. See you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsor, Philips, for their support of this podcast. Philips offers the latest advances in CT scanner design and technology to help give you the speed and performance to do more. Philips welcomes you to join their free virtual summit to connect and engage with leading clinical experts and peers on spectral detector technology. Visit Philips NA Spectral and AI Summit splashthat.com to register. Again, that is Philips NA Spectral and AI Summit dot splashthat.com.